Welcome to the Do Better Podcast. On today's episode, we are interviewing behavior analyst and author Robert Schramm. This is Megan. And this is Joe. This is where we blast off to the final frontier in search of improving ourselves in the field of behavior analysis. Thank you for spending time with us. Now let us begin. Thank you for listening to the Do Better podcast. This is part one of our series with Robert Schramm. We actually decided to split his interview into two parts, and we're having you listen to the second half of the interview first. So it might seem a little out of order, but we thought it was best to have you learn what the seven steps are before hearing some of the other discussion that we have about the seven steps of instructional control in just everyday life. Please enjoy our discussion of the seven steps and listening to Robert explain what each step is. So let's start. Let's start with the individual steps. Um, Step one, uh, show your child that you're the one in control of the items or activities they want to have, hold, play with, to do, uh, and that you'll decide if, when, and for how long they can have access to them. Um, this, all of these steps were written with the idea of the parent in mind. They weren't written um, scientifically. I tried to avoid using um, behavioral language. Uh, and basically, I just want to show the child that as the interventionist, as the parent, as the teacher, that it's ultimately my decision when they get access to their favorite things. Everything that we've brought into this house as a parent is things that we've allowed our child to have access to. We made that decision. Like, we're not letting the kid play with a gun. We're not letting him pl- drive a car. There's rules about what he's allowed to play with and what he's not allowed to play with. But just because I brought something into the house, just because I brought Legos into the house, doesn't mean the child has to have access to them freely whenever they want them. I can give and take access to those Legos dependent upon behavior. And if I have the ability to do that, then I can say the Legos are now a tool that I can use to show the child when good behavior is occurring and when, when inappropriate or less valuable behavior is occurring, right? And so step one is all about taking control of the motivators in the environment. Um, anything that your child is gonna deem as a positive outcome, something that they would wanna be doing in the moment is something that um, you should be able to know that you can control access to, and that you can be able to give it and take it at your, your desire, not at the child's desire. If a child can get the TV turned on and hold the remote control and push you away and block you and watch TV even when you don't want them to, then the TV no longer becomes a useful tool for you. You've got to be able to wield the tool. Um, And our reinforcers are our tools. So anything the child would be motivated to have or to do, um, we have to somehow find a way to be able to control it and not just take it and hide it and put it away, but to be able to control it from moment to moment. Because ultimately, when we get through the steps, you're gonna, we're going to talk about how it's important that child, children have experience with the gain and the loss of things. This is what gets me things. Oh, this is what loses me things. This is what gets me things. This is what loses me things. So I'm going to start choosing the behaviors that are consistently getting me things. They're getting me more attention. They're getting me more praise. They're getting me more access to the stuff that I want to be playing with. Um, so I'm going to start making those better choices because that's what works for me. That's what's successful. So step one is all about taking control. Now, what does that look like when you get into a typical family's home? 
or if I go into a, a typical classroom, well, the opposite of play. You know, you have toys everywhere. The, the Xbox is there and all the games are lying out and there's Legos all in the corner and there's stuffed animals all up to the sky. And what happens is a parent will say, hey, I need you to come over here and throw this in the garbage. And the child will be like, no, I'm busy. And the parent will be like, come on, I need you to do this. Just help me out. I'm, I'm tired. I'm busy. I'm doing all the stuff. Just throw that in the garbage. No, don't want to. And the child says, well, fine. Well, then you can't play with the iPad. And the child says, okay, cool. And then they go off and they play with the Legos. And then the parent's like, well, no, you can't play with the Legos either. And then they're like, okay, fine. And then they go and they play the Xbox. Well, then you can't play with that either. And then they run off and they play with something else. And the parent does exactly what I started this whole conversation off is the child escapes, the parent chases. The child escapes, the ch parent chases. And that's the wrong way. That's the, the last thing we want. We want those items to already be easy to block off so that you're not having to run around chasing the child as they play. So what does that mean? Uh, it depends on the child. It depends on the situation. It could mean toys are put into plastic bins with lids on them, or you can easily just stand in front of those lids, uh, you know, put your hand on the lid and the child can't get the toys out. It could be having shelves that are, a child can't reach that you put the toys on so that when you need to, you can put them up high and then you can just sit back and say, okay, well then until you're willing to, oh, we lost someone. Um, until you're willing to um, cooperate by putting that in the garbage, you're not gonna have, you're not gonna, I'm not gonna take any of your toys down. It could be having all the toys in a playroom and being able to lock that door and just saying, okay, well now you don't get to be in the playroom right now because you've just chosen not to co cooperate. So how we, how we block things off will be dependent upon what the child's interested in and what we have available to us. But the bottom line is in order for the seven steps to work for us, we have to be able to control the reinforcers, the motivators, the things that the child wants to play, do, hold, we have to be in control of them. If they're in control of them, we don't have them as tools to work with. Um, we don't want to be relying on our pure energy and our voice and our sheer will to get them to do things. We wanna be able to just very quickly and calmly pull back access to something they want and say, sorry, until you're done, oh, now you can do it. Now you've done it, now you can have it. Oh, now you can lose it again. Now you get it, now you lose it, now you get it. And do that back and forth as many times as necessary until they start choosing the behavior that's always getting them better things. Um, that's step one. And does that bring up any questions from you guys acting as the, the potential stand-in for the listener? Well, I know one question you're always going to get, so I'll just go ahead and say it. What do you do if a learner is engaging in a high rate of stereotypy? How do you yeah. control access to that? Yeah, um, I, I had that question uh, in, a, in another podcast that I've done recently. Uh, it was something that was mailed in. So you're right. That is the first question you're going to get. And that's going to be an important question for um, families of children with autism. Uh, it's probably not going to come up as much when we're dealing with uh, typical children. Uh, but since you guys are mostly focused in, uh, your, your audience is mostly focused in on, on intervention with, with children with disabilities, I think it's important that we cover it. Um, Self-stimulation is a form of reinforcement. It's usually a form of reinforcement that we can't control, which kind of takes it out of our realm of being able to use it as a tool, unless you're really creative. So let's say you have a child who self-stims by... Um, uh, looking at something like they're holding a, a bottle and they like looking at the way the light shimmers off the bottle. Well, having access to that bottle then becomes our way of controlling that stim. If the child is, likes to just look out the window, being able to close or open the shade 
becomes our way to control access to that stem. If a child likes to flip spoons or um, like uh, you know a piece of paper or something like this and listen to that, our ability to control that paper becomes our ability to control the stem. If a child is just stemming with their hands, the only way to control it is to physically block it. Um, but if we get into step seven and we have a child who is willing to do that, we have a couple of things that we try to do. And when we get to step seven, I think we'll talk about that more completely. But just to answer your question for now, um, in the escape condition, you may need to block a stem. But in the teaching condition, you want to allow it. In fact, you want to even maybe make it, try to make it social, engage in it with them, try to make it more fun that you're a part of it. Because if a child likes to stim by themselves, that's one thing. But if they want to stim with you and they want you to be doing it with them and they find that more fun, suddenly now you have the ability to control when you do it with them and when you don't. So you can turn it into something that's not only a social interaction, but also something that you can use as a tool to help teach new skills. Um, and so what will happen is you'll, you'll need to lock it during the escape condition. Maybe you need to put your hands on their hands and hold it down. If the child's running back and forth, maybe you need to get in the way of their ability to run. Um, or close off parts of the room that would make it less likely that they would be able to enjoy that in the escape condition. But because we're going to take that value out of the escape condition, it also makes sense if we know that that's value, let's put that on our teaching condition, right? Let's add that STEM availability to when we're teaching. So now not only are we taking it off of the weight on this side, but we're adding it to the weight on this side of our of our uh, scale, and we're making it more likely that we can use it to help keep them engaged in, in learning. Um, the, the, the most challenging um, self-stims I found are kids who are able to just kind of run through TV shows in their head, and they can just sit there with their you know eyes open, eyes closed, up against the wall. They could just sit there for hours and just kind of visualize their way through things, and you can just see that they're just enjoying these stories in their head that obviously becomes the most challenging. If you do need to block that in an escape condition, um, the best way I've found to block it is to just disrupt them with, with, verbal, with verbal nagging of some sort. You know, const you know constantly distract them with, with some kind of verbal language. Now, um, again, most of our families who are typical, typical children are not gonna have to deal with this. Even most families with kids with autism, uh, if they have self-stimulatory behavior, most of those kids will resort to self-stimulatory behavior, but have other things that they would prefer to be doing. And if that's the case, we can let them stim and still stay away from them and ignore them. And chances are that stim will start to become a little bit less interesting after a while, and then they'll want to come back to the things that we have. It's only that small subset of kids who would rather be doing their stims than anything else that we really have to be creative and start spending some time blocking stims during the escape condition, and then making that STEM available during our teaching condition in a high enough level that they would rather stay in teaching than escape. Does that answer the question pretty well, though? Yep. Joe, uh, do you have any? No, uh, I don't right now. I mean, I'm... Uh, now, we talked a little bit about step seven there, but we're really yeah. focused on step one. Is just, step one isn't about withholding things. That's later. Step seven is about making sure that you control the environment in a way that you can withhold it if you need to. I want to make mm -hmm. that clear. Step one is just saying, if you're going to have Legos available to the child, can you quickly get them into a box and get that box out of their hands or give it back to them in a second if you need to? It's not saying what to do or how to do it or when to do it. It's just saying you need to have the ability to do it. 
regardless of what their motivators are. Okay. So here's a question I have. So if I have a, a learner that um, engages in stimming, but he talks about Disney characters, okay, and constantly likes to talk about them while engaging in verbal behavior, um, would you want to pair yourself as a reinforcer by uh, a reinforcer by uh, also um, talking about Disney characters with them, or okay. do you want to? Yeah, this question will fall into step six a little bit because step six talks about priorities. And so we're going to have to make some decisions about what our priorities are for this child. Is the goal for the child to build their, their functional language? If so, you may use the Disney characters as a reinforcer for using functional language. In which case, as you're communicating with them and they're willing to answer questions functionally, you then would mm -hmm. then reinforce talking about Disney characters for a period of time as a reinforcer for having made that choice. If your goal is, we need to get rid of Disney characters because this kid is, is nonstop with the Disney characters and everyone's making fun of them and, and they're, they're called Princess Diane or whatever, you know, Princess yeah. Aurora by the other kids in class and that's a priority, you might behave with it differently. You may make a choice not to use it as a reinforcer. So okay. again, I don't think I can answer that question 100% it, it, without knowing what the priorities are of that program. Um, but for me, step six is where we would discuss those things. Like okay. what is the goal we're trying to achieve and what is the priority and what we're trying, you know, is it more important that this child is learning functional language or is it more important that this child is learning to like and interact with things other than uh, Disney characters? And then based upon what the answer to that question is, is how we would decide how we would address it. Um, but if you say that the Disney characters isn't a problem other than the fact that the child just spends a lot of time doing it, yeah. I would argue, let's not try to hide it. Let's use yeah. it for reinforcing value and let's, let's ask the child, child functional options, their language. And as a re reinforcer for that, we would then talk about Disney. Like you talk about what I want to talk, then I'll talk about what you want to talk as a reinforcer. And you teach that child okay. that give and take that back and forth. Yeah. Does that? Yes, thank you. Yeah, that's that's great. I love that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and again, when we get to step six, we can refer back to that that topic again because that's really where we we focus on it. And, and that's what's so funny. Um, and that's why I really, you know, always spend all my time talking about the seven steps, even though, you know, as a behavior analyst, you go well beyond this concept of just earning instructional control. But it doesn't matter what question you ask me. It doesn't matter where you guys go and you say, okay, well, what would you do in this situation? Or how would you go to that? Mm -hmm. I will be able to bring it back to one of the seven steps because if you're following the seven <laughs> steps, it will, your answer for what you should be do will be what you should do will be in there. In the seven and that's steps. really what I love about it. Um, so step one, show your child that you're in control of the items and activities that they want to hold, have, play, and do, and that you will uh, decide if, when, and for how long they can have access to them. That's step one. So we're talking about controlling access to reinforcement. We are the controllers of that. When people talk about sanitizing the environment, they're talking about making good choices related to step one, to instructional control. Um, step two is show your child that you are fun. Make each interaction you have with them an enjoyable experience so they want to have more fun following your directions to earn more of those experiences with you. Does that make sense? I think I, I added an extra word in there. I'm just going to read it. Show your child that you are fun. Make your each interaction you have with him an enjoyable experience so that he'll want to 
follow your directions to earn more time sharing those experiences with you. Um, this is where we, we, we teach the principle of pairing. Uh, this idea that when you pair two things together over time, the value of one will wear off on the value of the other. Um, if, you know, an example I have is if the first time you're invited to go skiing, uh, you go up to the hill and it's, you know, um, you know minus 20 degrees uh, below zero and you know your your nose is freezing red and you fall down a lot and you never really get off the bunny hill and the 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 girlfriend that you were desperately hoping the girl you were desperately hoping would become your girlfriend you saw her kissing some other boy um and now you go home at the end of uh at the end of the ski trip and someone says to you hey you want to go skiing you'd be like no i don't want to go skiing <laughs> that's not fun that I, that it's the last thing i want to do i'll go anywhere but ski However, you take that same person and on their first ski trip, you know, the weather's beautiful and they're out there skiing in t-shirts and jeans and um, they get, not only do they go down the bunny hill, but they learn that they can use pizza and they can go on the green slopes and they're doing a great time. And, and that one girl that they really like has been, decided that they want, they want to hold hands skiing down the slopes together and they get to sit in the bar afterwards and have drinks and it turns into, now the next time somebody says to you, do you want to go skiing? The answer is going to be, oh yeah, let's go skiing. I love it. Skiing is awesome. Now, skiing itself, the concept of skiing isn't different. It's just that what skiing was paired with was different. Skiing is either paired with something with a lot of positive reinforcers, making skiing seem more valuable to you, or skiing is paired with a lot of negative consequences, making skiing seem less valuable to you, less, less desirable. And so this concept of pairing just exists in life. Um, and we're all dealing with it. You know, there's a lot of people who, once they try something, and if they're not good at it the first time, they hate it. They don't want to do it. And they never learn to do it. Um, and then you've got other people who, when they're not good at something, something kicks in in them where there's the desire to be good and they start fighting and figuring it out. And then all of a sudden they are good at this thing. And now it becomes something they want to do. We're all different in the way that we naturally do that, but we can teach people these things. And the process of pairing is such a valuable tool for us. It's, it's to me, it should be 75% of everything we do with a learner we're trying to work with, with a child we're trying to raise. Um, we want to take all the things that are important for that child to learn, and we want to consistently pair them with high value things. I want you to be doing your math homework um, with access to, you know, by gaining access to, um, a favorite dessert or something of value or having music on in the background if it's not making it harder for you to concentrate. Anything we can do to make doing the homework more and more valuable to you by pairing it with positive things. Um, and so what pairing does for us is it allows us to pair up neutral items as reinforcers. It allows us to pair ourselves up as reinforcers. So the child not only is working from us, learning from us, but they're desiring to be with us. Maggie, you were saying it doesn't take long to meet a new child that I'm going to work with and have that child eating out of my hands. And that's because the first thing I think about when I walk in and meet a new child is what is going to allow me to pair myself with this child's reinforcers to the point where they see me like skiing, the positive skiing, that they want me there. And I start engaging in activities and things that are going to very quickly make me seem like a fun dispenser for that child. Um, that's my first goal. And the better we pair ourselves with reinforcement, the more access we're gonna to have to that child, the more access we have to them, the more we're gonna be able to ask from them in the other 25% of the time when we're not pairing, playing, reinforcing. Um, 
when you pair with reinforcement, you want to make sure that you're truly pairing. A lot of parents will sit down to play with their kids or teachers too, but there's such the teacher is so inside of them that they teach through the play and then the child never finds the play fun. And so they try to escape and the teacher's thinking, well, I'm doing all this pairing. And I look at it from the outside and I say, no, you're not. You haven't done any pairing yet. Well, I'm playing cars like he likes. Yeah, no, you're playing cars, but you're making him drive the car and he just likes lining them up. So he wants to line these cars up. And instead of being the person giving him the cars that he can line up and praising how cool it looks and, and talking about how wonderful each of the cars are and how perfect they're lined up, you're the one telling him, oh, no, no, take it and do this, take it and do this, which is fine. You can teach them to do that, but just know that that's your goal. That's not your, that's, that's the thing you're trying to teach. That's not the pairing. And every minute you spend doing this, you're not pairing. And if you spend 75% of your time doing this, you're breaking the rule of step two, which says 75% of your time should actually be pairing, which is not asking for anything in return from the child, just engaging in positive things and making them more fun because you're a part of it. For me, the thing with pairing that's most important is this idea of it's one thing for a child to like being on the swings, but it's another thing if they want you to be with them at the swings. So if you can teach a child that swinging on the swings is fun, but swinging on the swings when I'm there is way more fun because I'll jump out of the way at the last second and pretend to get hit or, or I'll let you hit my hand and I'll go, oh my God, look at my face, look at just what you did to me. Or you can throw a ball and they, they, they knock it up <laughs> into the air and you can fall down and make them laugh. Anything you can do that makes the swings more fun makes the swings a better teaching tool because now the child doesn't just want the swings, they want you to come with them to the swings. Now that they want you to be there with them, they're asking you to teach them. They're asking you to be a part of the, the process. And now you can sneak your teaching into that. But if they don't care about you, if all they want is the swings, and all you can do is control whether they get the swings or not, suddenly you're using all kinds of negative reinforcement instead of positive reinforcement. And now you're, the child is working, but only out of a way to be left alone. I'm working to get you to leave me alone so I can swing versus I'm working so that I can swing with you and have more fun with you. Which way is going to be better for your long-term engagement, your long-term teaching? Obviously using positive reinforcement, which is why in behavior analysis, we recommend it. But that all comes down to the process of pairing. If I don't pair myself with swings and make swings more fun because I'm a part of it, the child's never going to choose to seek me out to be a part of that process. And then I'm never going to be able to use the swings as, a, as an effective teaching tool or as effective as a teaching tool. Make sense? Yeah. And for those, I know we'll, um, we'll talk about resources, but those who haven't seen it, Robert has some great videos demonstrating pairing on his YouTube page. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, Google SRAM, which is spelled with two M's, S-C-H-R-A-M-M, -M, uh, and BCBA, SRAM, BCBA and you'll see all of my stuff. If you and just I'll have it, around, I'll put links in the show notes too for people. Awesome, good, I appreciate it. Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff out there for free. Um, in fact, I'm planning on making a, uh, in fact, I've already created it and I've already gotten a cover page and everything for it. I'm gonna make a free guide to the seven steps. It's gonna be 15 pages long uh, and it's gonna be basically teaching the concepts of the seven steps uh, in short form for people that I'm going to make available and just start giving out to anyone who's interested in it. Um, uh, just so that people have this 
to start working from. I th my, my opinion is that a large number of people who are just given this document will be able to take it and learn from it and start implementing it, especially if you already have a good behavior analysis background. But even typical parents who are mindful about what they do as parents should be able to read these seven steps and read the explanations that go with them and start to implement them. Uh, families are trying that or remember that they have uh, as much information as possible before they do it, then they could follow up by either purchasing our book, Megan, The Seven Steps to Earning Instructional Control, or possibly looking at my new book, which should be coming out in the next couple of months, The Seven Steps to Successful Parenting, um, or even contacting me um, at my website and just trying to see if there's one of my companies might be able to help them or if I might be able to individually help them um, in that process. So, um, yeah, but really that's, that's step two. Um, step one, on step, show, <laughs> step one, I'm, I'm always going to circle back. I never forget where we are, <laughs> um, but I do take tangents. Uh, step one, show the child that you are in control of the items they want to hold, have, and play with, and that you'll decide if and when and for how long they have access to them. Step two, show the child that you're fun. Make sure every interaction you have is as, as an enjoyable experience as possible so that they will want to follow directions to be able to maintain that with you. Like Blake. We were saying if Blake's not 75% fun making things great, then later when he says, I'm going to take away fun from you, the child's going to be like, well, that's fine. You're not much fun anyway. <laughs> yep. So he's like, well, I'm not going to play with you anymore. Good. Well, you don't play with me anyway. We don't play enough anyway for it to be worthwhile. So I might as well keep behaving badly because at least I'm getting something out of you yelling at me. Yep. Negative attention is better than no attention at all. And we make sure that that's never a possibility for the child. And I'm not saying Blake gives no attention at all. Don't, I'm not painting him that Yeah, way. he's a good I'm dad. Saying, I'm not yeah. saying that either. It's just a different way of, it's, it's just not how people, unless it, like, especially even for me, I'm, you know, more of like a data numbers person. And like I said, I didn't really fully understand pairing and how to have fun until I met like you and Steve Ward and Claire Ellis, who works with Joe in Virginia. Um, those yeah, are like my I know Steven's awesome. Yeah. So not everyone, you know, I'd be in the same boat probably if I didn't know you three, um, knows how to just play and have fun with kids. And so you don't allocate time to that, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and you know, I, and a lot of our consulting, um, the first few consults when we're working with families, sometimes we're just spending time teaching them how to pair, mm -hmm. teaching them how yeah. to play and, and pointing out like a little buzzer, like a little clicker click every time they, they give an instruction because they don't realize how many instructions they're giving and how much they're stopping the fun to get the child to do something with that they want them to do. Even oh. saying, look at, look at me, look at what I'm doing, yeah. is taking that child away from what they already want to be doing. And you have to earn that. You have to earn the right to say, look at me, so that that child will want to look at you. Mm -hmm. If you haven't earned it through, and the way you earn it is through parent, giving them what they want, the way that they want it, making it better, showing them that you're more fun than you are work. So that when you say, look at me, the child's going to say, yeah, I want to look at you. What do you got for me? <laughs> yeah. I know it's going to be more fun. And so you have to learn the desire. You have to earn that desire. That's why I was really careful when I wrote the book uh, and I wrote the, the early documents on the seven steps is that I, I, people always wanted me to call it the seven steps to instructional control. And I just, I fought back against that because to me, it's so important that we have this concept that instructional control is not something to be expected. It's not something to, um, to be created or demanded, but it's something that you have to earn from the person. I earn my instructional control with my, my daughters. I earn it from my wife. 
I earn it from my employees. I earn it from my other colleagues. I earn it from my bosses in the areas that I need it, right? Um, if a, someone is going to do something I ask of them, they're going to, I have earned that right. I have earned it through my behavior with them. Where, because like, I, I had this conversation yesterday um, with someone and it was such a great example. I've never thought of it before and I'm just going to throw it out at you again. So if you hear this in, a, in another podcast somewhere, don't get mad at me. <laughs> but it's like when you go out on a first date and you meet somebody, and you, you say, oh, man, this, guy's, this, this guy or this girl is really cool. I really like them. I'd like to see them again. And so you say to them at the end of the day, hey, I'm wondering, what are you doing Tuesday, Tuesday Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of this week? You know, that person is going to be like, whoa, wait a second. What's going on here? We just met. And now you want to take like, or, or say to them, hey, how would you like to help me move? You don't do that with someone you just met. You haven't earned the right with a friend to ask them to help you move or to pick you up at the airport or to spend the next five days with you. If you try to get something from someone that you haven't earned, they will put up a wall. They will shut you down. They will escape and they will avoid you. And when we talk about the seven steps to earning instructional control, it's these seven steps are put in place, not so that you have instructional control, but they put in place so that you are now following the process of being able to earn instructional control over time. And with them, you should start to be able to expect better and better instructional control the more you're earning it. Does that make sense? Yep. Is that, was that a boring tangent? Do you want to edit that out? It's fine. <laughs> I didn't think it was boring. Yeah, that was fine. <laughs> All right, we should move to step three. People are going to be like, this is the longest podcast episode ever. <laughs> I'm sorry. Hey, I'm uh, talking to you, and, and poor Joe, he's just kind of sitting here. Yeah, well, you know, I've been on a I've been on a social media hiatus for the last two or three years. I haven't really been been sharing my stuff other than just having the books out there. I haven't been doing it, so I'm pretty excited. As you can see, I'm pretty motivated to be out here doing this again. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it can it shows the how passionate you are, and I and I love the information that you provided. I think that's great, and I think it's really important to uh, disseminate between our field and even just anyone that wants to learn about instructional control. So it's really important. So thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for saying it. Um, so step three, show your child that you can be trusted. Always say what you mean and mean what you say. If you, sh if you say your child should do something, you don't want to allow access to reinforcement until it's been acceptably completed. This includes allowing for prompting to completion if necessary. So what this step is trying to say, this step is not about following through with your consequences and talks about what consequences to give or anything else. But this step is suggesting that you have to be someone who says what you mean and mean what you say. When you use language with your child, that language has to be the right cue to the right type of behavior that you want. And you have to be consistent with it and know, and that child has to be able to learn to trust that what you say will have meaning and that you will follow through with what you say. Mm -hmm. So and I, I throw the word being trusted. You need to be trusted by your child. So if I say to a child, um, I'm, you know, you're not going to get to have dessert unless you eat your meal. That child is not going to trust the words coming out of my mouth if they're able to find a way to negotiate into getting dessert <laughs> without having eaten their meal. So as part of this step, I would argue that a family needs to be very mindful of the language they use and when they use it and to have and make good decisions about um, the language that they want to use and what they want to ask for and when.
um, if you're going to say something, you have to expect that the child is going to follow what you're saying appropriately. If it's a request, they should have the ability to say yes or no, and you should accept that. So if I say to a child, hey, do you want to come over here and do some homework? And child's like, nah, I'm okay. I'm having fun watching the iPad. I'm having fun on the iPad. Well, the language you use suggested mm -hmm. that there was a choice. You gave them a choice to come or not based upon the language you used. And ultimately, you should accept that in that moment. And you should say, okay, well, then you can watch for a couple more minutes, but then we're going to have to do it. Mm -hmm. Now, when it's time to actually do it, and you don't want it to be a choice, you need to use language that suggests an actual expectation. And the three things that I like to say are, I want, I need, or it's time. Those are the three mm -hmm. that I use the most. Uh, it's time to do this now. It's time to come do homework. Or I need you to come over here and do some homework. Or I want you to put that down and come over here. Mm -hmm. Need and time are the best. You know, it's time to do this or I need to do this. But you can say I want you to do this as well. It still gives the idea of an expectation. And according to step three, once you give an expectation, you have to follow through with it. You have to be someone that the child can trust. If, a, you know, if... If a child's laying down in the grocery store and the child's saying, and the parent's saying things like, if you don't get up right now, I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to leave you here. Well, that's great. You know, that's, that's a wonderful tool if it works in the moment. But at some point in time, that child's not going to want to come. They're not going to get up. And then what are you going to do? Are you actually going to leave them there? Or are you going to show them that you don't have to be trusted, that your words are not what you mean? Um, so I would argue that you should never say something you're not willing to do. If you say, I'm going to leave you here and drive home without you, then you should do that. Now, I'm not saying do that. I'm saying don't say that, right? Um, it's important that you say what you mean and you mean what you say and that when you give an instruction, that it stays there and that it's followed. I can't tell if you guys are frozen. And we're here. I'm here. Either one of you moved for about... 12 seconds at the same time. <laughs> um, so once you give an instruction, it needs to stay there. And I, I, I visualize and I teach families to visualize that instruction being in the air. Not like drop to the floor. You're not going to try to knock it down. He's going to try to bat it away. He's going to try to find a way to get around it. But no, you've got to keep it there because they will not forget what that battle is. You have to be good at not forgetting. So once mm -hmm. you said, throw this in the garbage, then that throw this in the garbage stays in the air between you and that child until they do. And if they choose to do it, then there needs to be some consequences on the positive side, step four. If they choose not to do it, then there need to be some consequences on the negative side, step seven. Um, but if you're willing to forget about it and get involved in some other discussion about some other thing and never get them to throw it in the garbage, then you're breaking step three. You're not following the rules for step three. Um, if you say it, they need to do it. If you're not willing to follow through, then don't say it to begin with. If a child is, you know, running through the through the house and you know swinging around a doll, and you're like, "Hey, don't do that. Put that down. Don't ah, whatever," and you're not willing to go and follow through with the consequence, you truly might have well better off just saying, "Hey, good job. Way to go. I'm proud of you. Have fun," because at least then you're saying what you mean. At least then, there what you're saying matches up. Um, we're, we're told in the autism world that, that kids don't understand facial expressions. They don't understand emotions. And I think it's mostly due to the fact, well, with a lot of kids, it's due to the fact that from early ages, our facial expressions don't match up with the consequences. Like we get really angry with them, but then we end up giving them what they want. So the anger face doesn't match up with any negative consequence. So why, 
or it's inconsistent. Sometimes we show an angry face and they end up getting what they want from us and other times they don't. So there's no reason to use that angry face as a signal of what's about to come because what's about to come is inconsistent or a smiling face. Someone could come to you smiling saying, Hey, how are you? I'm such a, I'm your teacher. I'm so much fun. And then they give them tons of work. Why would, you, <laughs> why would you learn the benefit of a, what a, what a smiling face means if every time you see a smiling face, that person comes in and makes you do a bunch of stuff you don't want to do. So because our facial expressions are not consistently, um, are not consistently signaling the types of consequences that they should, the kids just never learn to differentiate. They never even learn to, to pay attention to them. But if we can start being trusted, having language that says what we mean and mean what we say, when I say I need you to do something, you know that that instruction is not going to the ground. Suddenly, they need to pay attention to those words. Suddenly, those words have more value and more meaning. And a child will start listening better, start paying attention better when you talk. Because if the better they figure out what you want and do it, the better their life is going to be, the, letter, the more fun they're going to have, the more value they're going to be able to experience. Um, and the same thing is true. You can get them to the point where you can start to signal disapproval. You can start to go, ooh, is that really what you want to do? And that will become a reliable signal to the child that things are about to start getting worse. But that only happens if we're consistent with our language, if we're consistent with our consequences. So step three is really important, that we, once we commit to saying something, that we have to follow through with it. Um, this does allow us to prompt if necessary. So if I say to a child, hey, touch your head, and that child's like looking at me, and I'm not sure that they know how to physically make themselves do that or what the words touch your head means, I should be allowed to physically prompt them and help them to do that. And if I do, that's part of step three, that's okay. I physically help them to do that, that's good. If I'm taking their hands and forcing them to do it against their will and they're fighting me, that's not part of step three. That's not part of the seven steps at all. Um, in fact, that's something we choose to avoid to do as part of step seven. All right, step one, control access to reinforcement. Step two, um, be as much fun as we can so that when we do have to ask for things, we're more likely to get it. The probability is higher that we'll get it re in return. Step three, Say what we mean and mean what we say. Show the child that we are going to be consistent and the language we're going to use is what we're going to follow through with so that they have every reason to believe us. Step four, show your child that following your directions is to their benefit and the best way for them to obtain what they want. Give your child easy instructions as often as possible and then reinforce decisions to follow those directions with good experiences. So in this case, we're using the principle of positive reinforcement, but we're also suggesting that we minimize the difficulty level of our instructions in the beginning. We start out by doing super simple instructions um, mixed in with our pairing. So rather than sitting down, and, so when I sit down with a brand new child and I start to play with them and I start to pair and engage and find out what's going on and, and see what they like, and I'm doing and I'm chasing them and I'm tickling them and I'm doing all things. But at some point, I'm going to be ready to do step three, which is I'm going to say what I mean and mean what I say. And then I'm going to do step four. I'm going to follow that positive response that I get with positive experiences. And so when do I give that instruction is really important. I don't want to give a child an instruction during a low probability time. Uh, if your child is walking out of the room or if your child is playing with their Nintendo and you walk in and say, hey, go put on your shoes. We're going to the store. 
that's a low probability that that child's going to stop the thing they're doing, look, mm -hmm. listen, think about what you've said, and then make the positive choice to do what you asked. So why, as parents, do we give those instructions in those times all the time? A parent's like, oh, I need, we need to go to the store now. Crap. Hey, turn off the Nintendo, put on your shoes, let's go to the store. <laughs> yeah. well, you just set yourself up to fail. That's a lot right? of steps, too. Like, yeah, right. yeah it's a lot, it's a lot of, of steps, steps for them to like go through and it's like it's like why yeah why and so you set to? yourself up to fail that's the key thing there you've you've gone to your child at a low probability time and you've given them an instruction why would they they cooperate with it what i teach my families to do is before you ever give an instruction always know in your mind the reason why the child will want to cooperate with that so maybe that involves walking over and putting, standing in front of the TV. And now the child's like, hey, I want to watch that. I want to play that. And you say, okay, no problem. You can play. But first, I need you to put on your shoes. And then the child puts on their shoes, and then you step away from the TV and let them play some more. Now, you've given your instruction after creating a high probability situation. You now are in control of something they want. They've demonstrated the desire to have the TV in that moment. Now when you give the instruction, the probability is higher that they're gonna follow it. And as you said, Joe, you haven't created an extensive series of things that they're gonna to have to do for a long period of time. You've minimized the work level. So like step four says, you give a simple instruction, something mm -hmm. ideally something that is fun or easy or was going to lead to fun or be easy and then you give it to them at a time when they're likely to want to cooperate because you know why they would cooperate if if, if i'm standing in front of the tv they can't enjoy their game right now as soon as yeah. he puts on his shoes and i step away from the tv i've now completed step four i now have given a simple instruction um, at a time when the child is likely to be able to cooperate with it at a time when i think they will then mm -hmm. when they do cooperate with it, I add something of value. Well, to some degree, I kind of remove an aversive. But I'm also making the TV now available to them mm -hmm. uh, to continue to play as the reinforcer for having made that good choice. When you have kids who are not cooperating at all, who have like 5 to 10% instructional control, which to me means 5 to 10% of the times you give them an instruction, are they going to look, listen, and try their best to cooperate with it in that first effort in that first moment as best as they can. If that's only going to happen five to 10% of the time and 90% of the time or 95% of the time, they're going to ignore you or avoid you. And you're going to have to repeat yourself over and over to get it. Step four is all about changing that pattern. We only give instruction. We give instructions during every high probability time we can. We give our easy instructions that are likely to be followed easily. And then we make lots of positive reinforcement available afterwards because we start changing this concept of instructions being things that are needed to be avoided and we start setting up an environment where instructions are now the signals that good things are going to start coming if you cooperate right and so we set it up so that's an easy thing to do step four is about using positive reinforcement we want to add value whenever possible my example could be argued as negative reinforcement but if you say to your child um, if the child comes to you and says i want a, a gummy bear and you say, sure, throw that in the garbage first. Well, you know what they want. It's a high probability time that you'll be able to give it to them, that, that they'll answer your simple instruction. And then when they do it, you're the giver of a gummy bear. You're the giver of good things. So you're using positive reinforcement for them. 
Now, so when do you give instructions? When you know what the child wants from you. When they want something that you're in control of. When are you going to be able to be in control of their things that they want? Well, if you've done step one to instructional control well, always, you're always in control of the things that they want. You can give and take it at your will. You can block it if need be or make it available, and they can't get it without you. Um, step two, you're making yourself so much fun that they're not going to want to avoid you or escape your instruction because then they're going to lose access to your DM. And now when you listen to the garbage can, they know that they can trust you, that you're going to follow through with something of value because when they do cooperate, you're going to give them the thing that they're looking for or you're going to somehow make their life better. I don't want kids working for a specific thing. And in this step is where we get into the conversation of first then versus if then. The way I differentiate first then and if then, can I go on to this tangent? You can go talk as long <laughs> as you want. <laughs> I feel like I'm sitting in one of your workshops right now. <laughs> Listeners will love it. They'll just need a lot of time to listen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully, maybe you can split it up into two. Maybe we can do two parts. But for me, this is an important aspect of this. It's all important. <laughs> it's like, it if, if I want families to be able to learn from this and take it and use it in their home, they need these little parts too. And if it's not working for them, it's because they're missing these little parts, not because the seven steps don't work. That's what I'm worried about. Someone to to do a really poor, horrible job of trying to implement the seven steps, not being successful, and then saying, oh yeah, I tried the seven steps, it doesn't work. Well, so yeah, go ahead, Joe. So to me, that sounds like they had to do a lot of reflection on their part on how they're implementing the seven steps. And they have to take the time to really think, am I doing, the best job possible using the seven steps or am I implementing the seven steps like how it's supposed to be done? And they have to take the time to really see and be honest with themselves. Am I doing, if, am I following these steps like how they're supposed to be written? If not, I need to go back and change how I'm um, implementing it. And whether you're, you're focused on the seven steps or not, that's always the case. A parent mm -hmm. of, a ch of any child has to be mindful of the decisions they're making and what is the result of those decisions. The kids and the parents are always interacting with each other. They're always going back and forth, making choices and making consequences. And then they need to be able to be mindful about what is working and what isn't working. If something is working, we do more of it. If something is not working, we do less of it. Um, that's always going to be the case. And with the seven steps, it just becomes... The seven steps are not about do this and then do this and then do this and everything will be fine. It's about these are the principles that have to be in play. These are the principles you have to be, um, you have to have ownership of or you have to be uh, responsible to. And the question is, am I being responsible to all of these seven principles, all of these seven steps? If I am, I will promise, I promise you that if you are, you will see better instructional control. You will see better relationship building over time with almost every kid. If you're not, then there's a chance that you're not truly meeting all seven of the steps the right way. And that's where a professional coming in and observing you working with the child or talking you through what you're doing can say, oh, I see what's going on here. You're doing 75% pairing. But when I watch you pair, only 5% of what you're doing is actual pairing. Most of what you're doing is giving instructions and this and that. So you think you're doing step two well, 
but I'm watching you and I'm seeing that that's not what's happening. Your step two is ultimately resulting in maybe 15% pairing and 85% and work. No wonder he's still avoiding you even though you're following through with step seven and everything else, right? Um, they may be trying to apply these things and it may work really well for them because they are able to do that. And some people are going to try to apply it, think they're applying it, and someone else is going to be able to look at it and say, oh, see, you're saying what you mean and meaning what you're saying, but look where you just negotiated. You said you need to do this first, and then you let him do it this way, and then he only did half of what you said, and then you gave him the full reinforcer. And so you're not really following through uh, the way that you need to. And so sometimes it's not about whether or not the step, and I guess this is true for all of behavior analysis because the principles are the principles. It's not true that reinforcement either works or doesn't works, work. It's true that you either used reinforcement or you didn't use reinforcement. Because if you used it, it works. Right. Otherwise, it's not reinforcement. So our attempts at using reinforcement are going to be successful or fail. Not that reinforcement itself. And I believe the same thing is true with the seven steps. We may fail in our attempts to use the seven steps, but I don't believe that that means that the seven steps themselves are going to fail or not fail. It's just about how well are we following these principles? Because I didn't create the principles of the seven steps. They're behavioral principles. They're long before my, my participation in this world. Um, these things were being identified and used. I can create positive reinforcement, create the idea of uh, you know, stimulus control and extinction and stuff. That's all out there and it's available to you. What I did was I, figured out exactly what had to be in place and in a way that we can teach it to people so that they knew everything that they would have to be doing to be able to be successful in both getting better cooperation and building better relationships. So that brings me back to... Wait, I have one thought real quick before. I know sure, we keep no, interrupting no. your thing. So when you were talking about no, the reflection, answering Joe's question about reflecting, and you said, um, you know, look at what's happening, what's working and what's not working... And what I tend to see a lot with my own husband, I'm just going to keep bringing him up. I feel bad saying that, but, um, but other parents too, I'm sure, uh, is it's what you want to be working. So they'll just keep doing the same thing over and over because that's how they want it to be without yeah. actually recognizing, you know, that might be your end goal and we could break that down and shape and get there. But right now that's not working if we need to yeah. change things to get to that point. And maybe maybe what you want it to be just isn't a good idea <laughs> and like you need to be a little bit more flexible and like let go of your history a little bit of how you think things should be yeah that brings me to uh, the idea of I want him to do it because I said so right <laughs> I'm his parent I said he should do it he should do it okay well if that's your goal how do you get there do you get right. there by just demanding things and then being angry Repeating when they don't do over it? and over <laughs> That doesn't work. It doesn't get you there. So if that is your goal, that they're going to do things because you said so, well, I'm telling you that the seven steps is the best way to get there. Yep. Because if you prove that you are worthy of earning their instructional control, they will give you their instructional control. They will do it because you said so. They're not doing it because you're giving them a gummy bear. They're not doing it because you're tickling them or giving them praise. They're not doing it because um, they're afraid you're going to hit them. They're doing it because you've taught them through experience. Life is always better when you interact positively with your parents. When you cooperate with the things that we ask of you, your life is always going to be better. You don't know what you're going to get or why or how or where it's going to come from. You just know that life is always better when you do. And life always starts to get more difficult when you don't. 
And therefore you start to choose to do it more often. And eventually you get to that point where I say it, they do it. And they don't do it because I'm threatening something or because I'm yelling at them or they don't do it because I'm offering them candy. They do it because they know that they can trust me, that I will consistently make their life better when they do. And that's what it is when a child does it because they're respecting you. They respect yeah. you because you're showing them you earn their respect. You deserve their respect. So if your goal as a child to do it because you said so, the seven steps is the best way to get there. It really is because you've proven that you're worthy of their respect. You've proven that you're going to follow through when you need to. You're using the appropriate language for them to understand what you want. You're willing to prompt where you need to. You're making good decisions about what instructions you're asking of them. You're not asking them to do more than they're able to give you. And because you're doing all of these things, you'll get to that point eventually where when you say it, they'll do it because it's in their best interest and because you said it. And that's your goal. This is how you're going to get there. You're not going to get there by just demanding, 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 and being mad that they're not doing it. <laughs> exactly. That's it. But yeah, that's a great point. I'm glad you, you, you brought that up. Yeah. Um, okay. So finally, talk about the if-then, first-then. Yeah, the first-then versus the <laughs> if-then. And I think that this is important. And I, and I know not everyone visualizes it the same way but if you visualize it my way this will make a lot of sense and it'll help you in applying the seven steps i visualized first then as the child has demonstrated a desire come to you to meet that desire and then you can say yes first you have to do this if then i i visualize as coming from the parent i want the child to do something so I then say, if you do this, I'll give you this. So the difference for me between first then and if then is who's, who's instigating or who's initiating that interaction. Is the child coming to you saying, I want something that you're in control of? In which case, I'm perfectly okay with a, child, with a parent saying, absolutely, you can do that, but first clean up those toys you have laying over there. In which case, the child has now already demonstrated what they want, and you as the teacher are saying what they have to do to get it. Yep. Yeah, you want this, this is what you have to do to get it. There's no negotiation there. There's no back and forth. You've told me what you want. I'm telling you either not do it, but you're going to get it. I'm in control. The teacher's in control. If you start with the if-then, where I go to a child and I don't know what they necessarily want, but I go to them with something I want, hey, I want you to put on your shoes. If you put on your shoes, I'll give you a gummy bear. You've now started the interaction by explaining to the child what you want, putting them in the position of being able to say what you would have to do to get it, or whether or not they're gonna give you what you want. You give them the power in that position. And so by starting with an if you do this, then I'll give you that, you are actually inviting negotiation. The child's not gonna say, oh, well, if that's what you want, Here's what you have to do to get it. I want three gummy bears, but not the red ones. I want the yellow ones. And you're like, oh, well, should I give them the yellow ones or should I not? Or I said one, should I follow through? The whole problem isn't whether or not you should. It's that you started by first telling them what you wanted without knowing what they wanted first. So giving instructions in an if-then setting where you walk up to the child and say, hey, I want this. What do I have to do to give you to get you to do it? Is always going to be a bad scenario. You yeah. don't want to ever be the one who displays what you want from them first. You want to get yourself in a situation where you're creating situations in the environment. You control the environment so that they're always wanting something from you. 
And then the next time they come to you wanting something, that's when you can give the first thing. Oh, you want to watch TV? Sure, go put those toys away. Or, oh, you wanted to have a, a token to be able to get your iPad? Well, I need you to go put your shoes where they go and your jacket hung up. If that child comes home and you say, I want you to put your shoes and your jacket hung up, the child's like, they don't want anything from you. They're likely to say, no, forget it. I don't care. But when they come to you and want something, that's when you can say, first do this. So first then, I think, is a very valuable tool. I use it all the time. I recommend it. When the child comes to you for something, use first then all the time in step four. Um, but try to avoid walking around thinking of things they might want and trying to convince them with a bait and switch. Oh, if you do this, hey, do you want this? You want this? Okay, then do this. Um, that puts you in a, in a, in a, in a worse position. Yep. Make sense? Yes. Yep. Do you agree? Um, I think that that conver that piece is really important and there's a lot of mistakes that are made around <laughs> the kind of almost like, it's not quite because if you're offering it ahead of time, but there's so much, we could probably have a whole separate episode about like, how do you properly motivate and when does it turn to maybe bribery and all that kind of stuff. So maybe we'll yep. have to check in. Um, and, you know, and down I, think the road. Early on, I think early on a program, it's not going to kill you if you do some if then. If you say, hey, look, I need you to make your bed. I'll give you five tokens if you do it. What, what we do, though, is if we do have to use that, we want to be fading away from that. We want to get to the point where the child doesn't know that making your bed is going to get you five tokens. But yeah. that when they make their bed, they know you're going to give them enough tokens to have made it worth it because that's what you do as a good, trusting responsible respect earning parent um, and so they're not doing it based upon what they're going to get for the individual goal but that they just do it because cooperating is always in their best interest yeah. and so you can use if thens early on sometimes we do in like the first visit or two when a child has no idea that there's even a chance of getting something positive from you because no one ever gives them anything positive they're always the kid gets their positive stuff for free and the parents always the one taking it away at some point you may have to do some if then to begin with but the goal and the use of seven, the seven steps is to try to get away from the if then as much as possible and focus in on the first then or just give the instruction, see what happens, and then follow with a consequence that's positive when they give it to you or step seven if they don't. Yeah. Um, I think ultimately first step. Up. Oh, go ahead. Mm -mm. I was just going to say, I think two of the other points you make for step four and that we talk about quite a bit that would be helpful when you're first implementing. We don't have to have a long discussion about it, but just for people when you're, you're going into this. One is that um, obviously you're, and you talk about this in the book quite a bit, but you go and you start with like that thick schedule where you are giving a lot of support of like waiting for them to want something and giving them something to do and giving very frequent access to reinforcement. But anybody who's listening to this, especially if you're a parent thinking, geez, my child is just going to have all the things all of the time. I can't, how is that productive? Like you fade that out and ultimately you get to a point where you have such a strong relationship with your learner that you're doing all sorts of things um, with, with them and you don't have to be giving such frequent access to reinforcement. It's funny that you bring that up right now because that's step five. Yeah. Okay. Well then we'll talk about it there. I'm, I was just getting ahead of myself. Sorry. But as no, you were talking about the if then I was like, oh, we should probably make sure people aren't like, what? <laughs> I have to do this all the time. <laughs> no, that's, that's exactly what people think about. And that's why there is a step five, right? You can't possibly give your child a reinforcer for every single positive behavior that they do. Although step four says you start out by doing that, right? 
you want to give your child easy experiences as often as possible and follow them with, with positive things. That's step four. So here's what step five says. In the early stages of earning instructional control with your child, reinforce after each positive response, moving to an increasing variable ratio of reinforcement. Now that's the only behavioral principle I have in any of the actual steps themselves, because I don't really know how to explain that without you know, 10 sentences. Um, but what that does is exactly like you say, in the beginning, day one, we're gonna try to practice. I give an instruction, you do it, I give you something good. I give you an instruction, you do it, I give you something good. And we do that back and forth, back and forth, all day long, as much as we can in the early stages. But as soon as I give, start giving instructions and that child is very quickly cooperating without any problem, we're already gonna start moving into step five where we start to thin out that ratio of reinforcement. So now we're gonna be able to sneak in a second instruction before we have to reinforce. And then eventually start to get where we can sneak in a third instruction. And we wanna do it variably. So we wanna be able to mix back and forth. Sometimes we'll do it after one, sometimes we'll reinforce after three, sometimes after two, but we'll do it on an average of about every two responses. Then we get to the point where we can start to reinforce about an average of every three or five responses and then seven to 10 responses. And you get to the point where now you don't have to reinforce all your behavior throughout the day. Your child can come home, he can hang up his jacket, he can put his shoes away, he can come in, he can um, put his lunchbox on the table, he can go in and he can start playing a game and then you can walk over and say, hey, I saw that you did all those wonderful things, Here's, uh, here have some strawberries with uh, some Nutella. Uh, while you're playing your video game. And that's the natural relationship we kind of want to build towards. But we're not going to get there if we're not willing to reinforce each and everything in the beginning for kids who are absolutely oppositionally defiant or kids who are just don't have the skills uh, to wait for more than two or three seconds before they try to get what they want. Um, or have that history. Your question, your question <laughs> history is of punishment too, right? Like they, right. I've had clients where it's like they... Well, I even had one um, family where like they had really good services and then they moved and they didn't have very good services for a little bit. And even the child never even knew me before, <laughs> never even been to their house. And as soon as I came to the door, they started screaming um, yeah. and it took weeks to break that. Like, so, you know, you're fighting against any sort of history too, whether it's from a family or in the schools, um, you'll have that come up as well. Yeah. And that's the problem. Pairing unknown people have been paired with work. You walk in the door and you're an unknown person. So you've been paired with work. So you're a negative. Yep. You need to be avoided. <laughs> yep. Right. And, and that's, and then you have to work, you have to counteract that. You have to work against it. You're not even starting neutral trying to pair yourself. You're trying to pair yourself away from being a negative. And that's just a harder process. Um, but yeah, but like I said, parents out there, don't worry. Step four says you need to reinforce each and every positive response. Step five says you do that in the beginning. But over time, you thin out that ratio of reinforcement. You start to reinforce every two or three responses, every four to five. Every seven. Eventually, you get to the point where a child in your classroom can sit down and do 25 minutes of work to then get 15, 20 minutes of recess. Uh, and as long as you're doing enough praise and, minimum, and, and other forms of reinforcement throughout, you'll be able to maintain that ratio. Um, but if you try to do that now, you're not going to have any success. So it's the kind of thing you have to earn. If you want to have the kind of instructional control where a child will sit down, will come home from school and do all of their after school activities without you having to say anything, you're going to have to earn that from them. And the way that you earn it is step by step showing you do for me, I do for you. You do for me, I do for you. And eventually you do two things for me, I'll do something for you that's worth it. 
Now you're doing three to four things for me. I'll still make it worth it. And eventually you build up to you come home, do all the things you're supposed to do. And life remains positive and fun and good. And we play together and we keep our ratio of 75 fun, 25% work. Make sense? Yep. Cool. So that's step five. I'm not going to keep going back over each step every time. <laughs> um, I like it though. It, it gives me repetition and gets me to know that all the seven steps. Like, well, and I'll have that handout, the like website. You have the nice one pager of the seven steps, so people can look back at that. You know what I can do is that free guide that I'm putting together. I'll just you can make that available. Make it available online. And people can just download it if they want. And it'll be, be the free guide. Yep, and I'll put that would be awesome. In it. Cool. Hey, by the way, do you think I could share that with my uh, parents as well? Absolutely. Uh, I was just talking to um, um, Gemma in, uh, in Great Britain. Actually, she's, she's in Wales, right? She's in um, Scotland. She's in Scotland? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have, I've had so many experiences going over to Wales and Scotland and, and England with different people. And I, I sometimes get confused. I, I know she's got Edinburgh. one of those accents. Yeah. She's either in Glasgow or Edinburgh. I always forget which. <laughs> well, I, I chatted with her and she told me um, that she came to a workshop that I did um, probably 12 years ago. And to this day, the um, seven steps document the PDF that she got off of my website from back then. She still gives it to every parent she works with as an initial part of their uh, introduction uh, to behavior analysis. So yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. I want, I want those things to be out there and available. I want all behavior analysts to have the availability of this as an alternative to some of the things they might've been taught using escape extinction. Um, I'm not telling them that they have to use this, that they're wrong for using escape extinction. I don't have data that says that this is necessarily 100% uh, better. I do have 20 years of experience and, and probably over, easily over a thousand kids that I've worked with where we've been able to prove that we can successfully earn instructional control through these methods without using escape extinction. Um, but to give every behavior analyst uh, another tool in their toolbox and a way to go about these sort of things, um, I think is useful. So um, one of the things I'm doing with uh, Robert Tram Consulting, which is um, something that I'm, I'm trying to make available uh, at some point here in the future online, is making myself available to other professionals, to other occupational therapists, speech pathologists, and other behavior analysts and RBTs and saying, so yeah, you understand behavior analysis, you're using the principles really well, you're still struggling and having to use a lot more escape extinction than you want, Let's meet up. Let me chat with you online and let me really answer your questions and help you identify how to do the seven steps with a couple of clients until you get really good at it. And then you don't, then you're off on your own using that as another tool in your toolbox. Um, that's something I'm looking at doing as well as continuing to help parents, both in the field of autism intervention and typical parents. So, um, yeah, so take it, use it, share it. Uh, as long as you think it's beneficial, take advantage of it. Thank you. Um, yeah, you want to go to step six? Yes, let's. Do yeah. It. All right. I would be a terrible. I would be like in a dance. Like if I was a, if I had to be the follower in a dance. Like you know how the couples dance. They're supposed to be the guy's supposed to lead and the girl's supposed to follow. Which you know I don't know why we still have that tradition, but let's assume <laughs> we still do. I would be the worst girl in a dance possible because they would be telling me what to do and where to go, and I would be on my own tangent. 
I, you know, <laughs> um, and I apologize if I'm doing too much of that right now. But. No, that's fine. No. Um, step number six, demonstrate that you know your child's priorities as well as your own. This is a little bit of a catch-all um, step in that I'm covering two principles within it. The first one is understanding your child's priorities, which really means that we have to have a good grip on your child's motivations. What is it that they're motivated by? What are their reinforcers? And what, I'm, what I want you to do in this is I want you to differentiate the type of reinforcement you use beyond just a differential reinforcement. I give it to you if you do it, I don't give it if you don't. But I want you to go beyond that. I want you to differentiate that the better the quality of the response, the higher level reinforcement I want you to give. Um, if a child is um, responding uh, appropriately, but with just a moderate level of motivation and interest, and you're reinforcing with um, popcorn and you're giving them a popcorn piece of popcorn and every time they do something and you're giving them a couple pieces and then all of a sudden they do something really out of out of ordinary for them they give you a response that you weren't expecting a better quality response or they just turn and said something really nice to the brother and sister where normally they yell and scream at them to shut up you don't want to just give them one more piece of popcorn yes we know that popcorn acts as a reinforcer but it doesn't it doesn't offer anything more than they were getting when they were just responding normally. Mm -hmm. And so I want you to know what their priorities are in their reinforcement levels. And I want you to be able to say, Hey, that was so cool. Get a cone, or let's go get less bears. Or I know you love, you know, we're having fun playing this game, but you love the trampoline more. So let's go jump on the trampoline. Um, or um, not only am I going to give you this popcorn, but now I'm going to tickle you as well, which is something I know you like. <laughs> um, you want to be able to always more, more strongly reinforce with more value the things that you more value in getting from them. And so as you see better behavior, you want to be able to go up your hierarchy of reinforcement. Uh, and again, the same thing is true on the negative side. If you're giving them a, a piece of, if you're giving them a cracker every time they make a choice and they start to behave, they start to like, delay how they're listening or they start to lose their motivation, you might crack a little piece and say, okay, well, that's all you get for that. Sorry. Because you want to show them that when you're not really attending or when you're letting yourself get distracted by other things, you're going to lose access to some of the value, but still keeping it going. Um, so that's what step six is talking about. Demonstrate that you know your child's priorities. But it also, I also throw in there knowing your own as well, because this is where we get into the conversation we had earlier, where we discuss, um, Let's say a child says, um, you ask a child who's nonverbal to say mama, and, for, and they say mama. And then as you start to reinforce them, they reach out and they grab the reinforcer out of your hand, stuff it in their mouth, or try to stuff it in their mouth. What should you do as a behavior analyst? Should you stop them and block them from having it, take it back, and then re-deliver it? Or should you let them have it? Or should you let them have it and give them another one? What, what is the best thing to do in that situation? And I'm not gonna put you guys on the spot and have you answer it because <laughs> the, answer, and the answer to me is always, it depends. It really depends on your current goals and where you're at in that time. What are your priorities? Is your priority getting that child to say their, their word mama? And that was the first time they've ever said it clearly. Well, I don't care that he's stolen the, the gummy bear from me. I'm gonna give him two more. 
or I don't care that he's jumped on the trampoline. I'm going to jump with him and let him be mm -hmm. more fun because I'm there because I got that mama, which is a higher priority in my program than not stealing. Uh, if I have a kid who's already talking and able to say mama, and I'm just asking him to do it as a maintenance skill, and now he steals, maybe we have a priority that not stealing is more important to us, in which case I would block it, try to get that reinforcer back and say, uh-uh, try again, mama, hands down, good now, now I'll reinforce you, if that's what I need to do. Um, and step six is where we make those decisions. We need to know how to best reinforce them and how to reinforce more when we get better things. But we also need to know our priorities. What is it we're trying to achieve? If we've got a child who's doing absolutely nothing you ask, maybe 5% instructional control at the home, and now the parents are using reinforcement and they're getting that child to cooperate, but the child's whining and complaining while they do it. Do we want them to reinforce them doing it while they whine or not? Well, in the beginning, getting them to just cooperate may be the priority. So we'll reinforce even though they're whining. But at some point in time, now that they're doing 60% of everything the parent is asking, maybe now we will start to prioritize the whining. And now we'll stop and say, okay, now you're not going to get to do it if you whine. Nope, now you have to do it again without the whining and reinforce. So you can make a decision. Do we stop the whining right from the beginning, which would then put us into a lot of more of extinction, step seven, because now they're going to be unable to do it without whining. And now you're going to spend a lot more time fighting with them. Or do you accept it with the whining get this positive thing built up where they're getting lots of positive reinforcement for cooperating. And then once you've got that going, then start to focus in on the lighting. All of those types of decisions are made into step six. So that's it. That's the first six steps. That's everything that I want people to do with their kids so that their kids will want to cooperate with them. They can trust that their parents are going to be more fun than they are work, that they're going to get positive things if they make good choices, that they're going to say what they mean and that they're going to mean what they say, that they've shown them that I can control access to all of your favorite things and you're going to get it when you, you know, and I, I can take that control away whenever I need to. Um, I'm going to start by reinforcing you enough to make it worth it and then slowly over time am I going to increase the, the level of difficulty and how much you have to do before you get reinforced. All of those things put, to set, put together give your child every reason to want to cooperate with you. Now, based upon past experiences, they still might not. <laughs> they still might go against their own best interest in the moment because they want to maintain some kind of control that they've learned is more powerful to them in the long term. Or they may want to have a past history of, hey, we want to yell or give in. So that's where we need step seven. Step one through six is all about setting up your environment in a way where the child will want to cooperate. Step seven is what you do when they don't. Step seven, show your child that ignoring your instructions or choosing inappropriate behavior will not result in the acquisition of reinforcement. Simple, right? Step, it's kind of the opposite of step four. Step four says, show them that if they cooperate and make good choices, they'll get good things. Step mm -hmm. seven says, Show them that if they make a bad choice or they refuse an instruction, that they will not have access to good things. You're going to block or withhold or take back whatever reinforcement that's available to you in that setting or available to them in that setting so that they don't see that these bad choices are valuable and worthwhile. Um, now, how do we do that? We do a couple of different principles. We might use extinction, meaning we might just withhold reinforcement that they've been used to getting. So a child 
a, a mom says to the child, hey, go put that in the garbage. And the child says, no, I'm not going to do it. You do it. You're stupid. And the parent just goes, oh, fine, I'm not dealing with this right now. And they throw it away. Well, that child is used to getting reinforced for talking back. So talking back leads to mom giving in. So now what's going to happen is we're going to tell that mom, once you've given the instruction, put it in the garbage, because of step three, that instruction has to stay there. Now when the child chooses to not do it, you're going to have to immediately jump into step seven. You're going to have to block access to all forms of reinforcement for as long as it takes until that instruction is followed. In which case, if the child is, is used to yelling and screaming at you, they might try to yell and scream at you. But you've got to make sure that you don't reinforce the yelling and the screaming. So you don't want to give it any additional attention. You don't want to give in. You don't want to forget about the instruction. Um, and you want to also make sure that the child doesn't have access to any other forms of reinforcement. And getting you angry is often going to be a reinforcer in those situations. <laughs> yep. right? if, if you, let I me mean, think about it. I mean, how many times has somebody done something to you that you were at, upset about with them? And then you get invited to a party and you're going to pass up going to that fun party because that person's there. You're not going to give them the satisfaction of seeing you there because of what they did. I mean, we're willing to spite our own good short term in order to maintain control in our relationships. We all do it a hundred times, you know, more than we would like to admit. And our kids are going to do it because it's in their best interest long term to, to maintain control. So even though they know that you're going to be willing to give them positive reinforcement if they just make that choice, they're going to still fight it because giving in is going to be giving up that control. And once they've, once you've said no to them and they're fighting, they, their behavior gets up here and they're all excited and running around and yelling and screaming. If you don't come up to them, their number one goal is to get you up to them. They're trying to get you up here making bad choices. So I teach my families in step seven, as soon as that child starts to get upset, starts to get out of control, you need to settle into the calm. You need to hide every button you have on you because your children are really good at knowing what buttons to push. Oh, mom hates when I scream really loud. Mom hates when I bang my head on the floor. Mom hates when I um, cry or dad hates when I cry real tears. Uh, they always give in when I do that. And so you're going to have to, once they're up here trying all of those things, you're going to need to settle into the calm and show them that none of those buttons work anymore. They're going to push the crying button and you've got to show them that you don't respond to it. Or you've got to push the, they're going to push the yelling, screaming button. Or they're going to try to hit you. And whatever they do that makes you angry, they're going to be able to say, aha, that gave me more power. I'm now in control. Before, they were in total control. I was out of control. They were getting what they wanted. I wasn't getting what I wanted. But now that he's angry or she's angry, now I get some control back. So it becomes really important that we, in step seven, that we control our anger. Which is, like I said, I still find myself every now and then getting upset with my own <laughs> And I'll still raise my voice with them. But I do know that when I need to, that it's not ultimately going to be the best thing for me. And if my kids got to the point where they were problematic and I had a behavior plan for them, I would be more stringent in my own relationship to avoid doing that. I would get off mm. my butt and I would take that iPhone out of their hand rather than just yelling. I mean, I'm being lazy by yelling when I do yeah. it. But I do know that if I was in a situation where my kid's behavior was getting in a position where I was no longer proud of the way that they interacted with me or proud of the way that they showed themselves in the world, and I felt like I needed to change their behavior in a meaningful way, that's exactly what I would do. 
copy. I would stop um, using to convince them and I would start using the motivators and I would go and I would do that on a more regular basis than I do even now. Um, and so as a parent that I'm teaching, they already have that problem. They already have a problem with a child who's yelling and screaming in the supermarket or who's refusing to put on their shoes or who's um, hitting them in public. And so they don't have the luxury of being able to be lazy and yell when they want to. They have to mm -hmm. use step seven in the right way. They have to not allow any reinforcement to follow inappropriate behavior or refusals. They need to show that they have no buttons. And when that child yells and screams and kicks in the floor or does anything else, they need to be able to keep the child safe, keep themselves safe, but not reinforce it. And once they do that, then you'll see that extinction burst start to reduce. That situation where when you use extinction and the child's behavior starts to go up, um, when they don't reinforce that behavior and eventually the child has to make the better choice and you get that positive resolve, well, the next time they go into extinction burst, they're going to be more likely to get down to this quicker. And the extinction burst will get smaller and smaller and smaller with, with, um, with each time you use it, as long as you don't reinforce it. But if you get upset and you start to reinforce any of the extinction burst behaviors, you're more likely to start seeing those behaviors instead. So families need to be taught this. They need to be taught how, what extinction looks like, how to use it effectively, um, what extinction bursts look like, how to get through an extinction burst without reinforcing it so that they can more quickly get down to that positive resolve and then reinforce that positive resolve they're looking for. Um, and so if a family is trying to use the seven steps and they're struggling in step seven to make it work, that's where professional help would be beneficial. Even just to sit down for an hour or two online to talk through it, uh, your specific situation. Yeah. I would be able to specifically help in that. Or anyone who's really well trained in the seven steps could do that for you as well. That's why I want behavior analysts to all be aware of this sort of thing. Um, and step, step seven step. is probably, oh, I'm sorry. No, please. And step, and step seven is like probably one of the most difficult steps to um, be a master of too. Yes, without question. You can teach someone how to pair a little bit better. You can teach someone to restrict access to reinforcement or, with, or to be able to control it. But being able to, in the moment, flexibly respond to every possible behavior mm -hmm. Ex, uh, uh, extinction burst behavior that your child might use can be challenging. Being able to stay in control when your child's hitting you and not get angry back at them because you know that the best thing to do is to show them that getting angry, to show them that hitting is just not affecting you. Um, it's hard yeah. to do that. And sometimes your kids can escalate to things that we aren't willing really or able to put up with. Uh, in which case they end up winning. And so we really, yeah. sometimes you do need to have professional help in these areas. And that's where I would say, if you have a child who is aggressive or self-aggressive, um, if you have a child who is threatening dangerous things mm -hmm. uh, or even um, having suicidal ideations, um, that sort of thing, that you really shouldn't be handling this on your own. You really need to be getting some support. And I think yeah. an analyst who um, understands these things is someone who can really help you. Um, yeah, and in my sure. school setting, that's all my students I work with. They are all with me because they engage in some type of aggressive behavior. Um, and that's where parents have the most difficult time too. And I think parents can handle those kids and can make good behavioral choices and good programming choices, but mm -hmm. they, they need guidance. And I they think if, if they learn the seven steps, then they can use step seven, which allows them to withhold reinforcement, 
but doesn't, it doesn't cause them to have to physically dominate the child. Mm -hmm. I don't have to hold the child into my teaching setting. I don't have to block them or make them do something they don't want to do. All I have to do is just take all the reinforcers, sit back and wait. And then mm -hmm. I can be what Steve Ward calls a wait out procedure, right? Um, he, he calls them wait outs. He's done some studies on, uh, he's done at least one published study on, on wait outs um, where he shows that if you are just willing to stop teaching and wait out a child's behavior, as long as you've got the balance where you're more fun than they can have without you, they will come back to you. And if it takes them an hour to come back to you, but they come back to you and think to themselves, wow, I'm glad I did that. I had much more fun here than I was having over there. The next time it's likely to be less than an hour and then it'll be less than that and less than that. And eventually you'll, I mean, it's not going to go linearly down, but it'll be like this, but you'll start to see a reduction in the amount of time they spend away. And you'll start to see an increase in the amount of on-task time and positive. Uh, and so waiting out is a part of I withhold access to reinforcement through extinction, and then I just wait out the child's behavior as long as I need to. And once they make the better choice, then I'm able to start reinforcing again. And I jump right back into step two. Mm -hmm. And I start playing and pairing and having fun. And once I'm paired up and I'm, and I'm in a situation where I have something the child wants, I can go back to step three where I can give an instruction in a high probability time. And then when I get the positive response I get, I can positively reinforce step four. Um, and then I can, if I need to, I can pull back a reinforcer and hold it for a few seconds. And then I can offer it again, like step one allows me to do with step seven. Um, and then I can start thinking about my priorities and the child's priorities. And I can start slowly thinning out my variable ratio of reinforcement. And I just go back and forth across all the steps. I'm either pairing or I'm giving an instruction or I'm reinforcing that instruction or I'm withholding reinforcement because of inappropriate behavior. And as soon as I get the behavior I want, I'm back to pairing again. And that's how this all works together. And then eventually it, it isn't just about putting things in the garbage or coming to me when I call, but it's about writing your name on the paper or doing this task or learning how to pull your pants up. And every skill becomes the instruction you give in step three. And then you slowly build up your skill level as you go. And so it kind of becomes a structure or a guide for your entire ABA program, because as long as you're following those steps and you're making sure that you're giving the right instructions at the right time and the right way, and you're using your prompts appropriately and teaching the skills you want, then you need to also be able to use step seven when you're getting it. But you don't just use step seven in isolation. You need all the first mm -hmm. six steps to make it work. Um, it's like yeah. beautiful dance. Yeah, it is. And, and, and you can become better at that dance. You don't need to, there's some people who are naturals at it. I've hired people to work for me in Germany. Uh, there's this one girl, Janina Mensa. Um, I, I, she still amazes me to this day. She showed up day one of training. This kid was like, it's like she was born to do this. And she, she never gave an instruction if she didn't have the child's motivation. She always used a, a, a prompt and was prompt fading right from the start. She um, immediately used a mini consequence, which is something we haven't talked about yet, but is part of step seven. Um, she used a mini consequence to show when the child was stepping off the path and then immediately brought it back in when the child was back in, in the right posture again and was able to then reinforce. Um, it, was, it blew my mind because I hadn't taught her any of these things principally. She just naturally knew how to do it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's why she was naturally a pretty, pretty um, popular and successful person in life. I think people just liked being around her because she was always able to make good choices that ultimately positively affected what she needed, but also built relationships. And I think that that's why this, this works really well for parents with all children. Awesome. 
I stopped. I stopped talking. How about that? <laughs> I know. It's incredible. <laughs> no, it, it is. And um, I, I love all those stuff. It's like it's, it's, it, it's a great um, procedure. And uh, like I, there's a lot of benefit to it, uh, to the procedure, you know, um, being implemented with our parents and training our parents. And um, there's a lot of things that we could do with it. I got a question for you. So sure. if you had, this is just a hypothetical question, but if you had an unlimited budget um, and you have no red tape, what, what do you think you would implement with the seven steps to make the world a better place? Wow, that's an interesting question. <laughs> my mind was going to, if I was running a, if I was running a business like I am, Tanos ABA, mm -hmm. and I had unlimited funding and limited option, the first thing my mind went to is I would start with parent training. Mm -hmm. To me, the most important thing we can do in behavior analysis is get the hands get the hands that are on the kids or get the hands that are on the clients uh, as well trained as possible. And that doesn't mean subsidizing them with outside help. Um, I don't want a mom or dad to have to pay for 40 hours a week of a trained person to come in when they can be trained in and they can get 50 hours a week for free. Yeah. Right? Um, and then, so the first thing I would want to do is what I kind of already focus on is parent training. Number one, I want all parents to have access to these, these, these principles mm -hmm. and a way to understand these principles where they can apply them in their homes to try to achieve the goals they're trying to meet. We all have different goals for our kids. I don't make judgments as to whether a parent thinks it's okay for a child to run around the house with in their underwear or not. judgment whether or not I should be able to jump on that I want that child who doesn't want their child and I want that parent who doesn't want their child to jump on the bed or who wants them to be wearing clothes to have the tools necessary to be able to get that from them without damaging the relationship and so for me parent training would be number one um, so I would focus on getting people like you guys who are skilled and have the behavioral principles in your back pocket to know the seven steps and to be able to teach it to others um, as, as comprehensively as possible so that they can do it on their own. Then for the kids who are the most challenging, the most difficult, the ones that you generally end up working with, mm -hmm. um, the ones with um, aggressive behaviors and, and um, maybe less uh, vocal understanding and language, uh, you know, for them, then I would wanna make sure that we have access to enough one-to-one -one from uh, people who are uh, not emotionally involved with the child to be able to um, sit down and, and, and be someone other than the parent working with that child. So there are some benefits to having outside supports. Uh, it is true that a parent can do most things with their kids, but there's some kids that are challenging enough that a parent may need some break and some respite, and you want to have the ability mm -hmm. to have a in there. So if it's unlimited funding, um, the first amount of funding I have is going towards parent training and getting parents trained up to be able to do it on a regular basis and get through their days where they're not just getting through the day, but they're making tomorrow better. They're making tomorrow easier for themselves and for their kids. But once we're doing that, then I would subsidize that with additional one-to-one -one support from um, 
people who are not emotionally attached to that child who can focus in on some goals that may be more challenging for the parent and who can do some more of the repetitive one-to-one because they're not worried about, you know, getting dinner made and everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would make that available to the families in proportion to what those families, children's needs are. Um, yeah, I don't think I have, I don't, I mean, I'd love to do a Ted talk. I'd love to get this <laughs> out to the world. Um, I would love that. I love Ted talks. But uh, I mean, because for some reason, if you're on a TED Talk, people watch it and they, yeah. they pay to it. And this is information everybody needs. I feel like I could talk about it well enough and make it uh, applicable enough to enough people that it would be something that would be useful for a TED Talk. Um, but ultimately, my goal is just to get it out there. Um, there's a lot of behavior analysts that have read my book and the book that I wrote with Megan. Um, there's a lot of behavior analysts that are out there using it. The books, you know, all of my books together have sold something like 15,000 to 20,000 copies worldwide. Um, And so there's a lot of families, but there's also a lot of behavior analysts that focus their behavior analysis on the seven steps and and work that way. But there's a lot that don't. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that getting that out to them, I think is beneficial and helpful to them, even not because the seven steps themselves have to be followed, but because the verbal behavior type, um, um, the verbal behavior approach type uh, principles and the prioritization of the research with verbal behavior, I think is a missing uh, piece in a lot of behavior analysts uh, repertoire. Uh, And I'd like to see that be more widely used. Uh, And, you know, to bring it back to you guys, I'd like to see everybody doing better, right? (laughs) We want everyone everyone to, to do better tomorrow than they're doing today. And that's including myself. Um, I tell families all the time, uh, you you can only do the best you can with the information you have, and that's all you could ever do. And so a year ago, whatever you were doing was the best you could do with the information you had at that time. And now if you know better, you can do better. And tomorrow you'll probably learn something new. So your job is to try to keep learning, um, but to never have regret for what you've done in the past because um, you can't go back and be that person knowing what you know now. That's not a possibility. You can only be that person with what that person knew. And so you need to give yourself some, um, you need to give yourself some space and some credit that if you're struggling with your kids in the home right now, that you've done the best you can with what you know to do. But now that you've got more information, now that you've got some new tools, now that you know where you can go for some additional help, it's time to step up and start to do better. And you can don't feel bad about what you've done in the past, but feel good about what you're now going to be able to start doing. Wow. That's, that's powerful. Uh, that's powerful. Thank you. I, lo- I love that. That was a great little nugget of that's, that's a great quote right there is um, for our parents just to just keep in the back of their minds. So thank you. I'll cut that out. I'll cut, make that available. <laughs> No, right, well, I appreciate well, you guys. I really appreciate you guys. I think you, you guys have done a great thing here. Um, with the do better movement. Um, you know, I avoided joining you for quite a while because I was like, Oh man, I got enough to do. This is just going to be more work for me. Isn't it? Robert, um, you're the person I created this movement for then when you say things like that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it took me a while and it took me a while to kind of, to get on board and, and to, to really go in and see what it is. So if you're watching this webcast and you've come to this webcast because of me because you're searching me and you wanted to see me talking about the seven steps great i'm glad that you're here 
but take this opportunity to go on Facebook and uh, look up the, the Do Better movement and consider joining that Facebook page and, and being a part of things there. Megan's doing all kinds of amazing things online. Uh, I know I'm working with her right now with something with a couple of other behavior analysts uh, that we're going to be making available for free for families, uh, for behavior analysts and people to look at related to evidence-based treatments and behavior analysis. And um, there's just so much stuff that's out there that you can do and you can learn. So if you really do care about being the best parent you can be, being the best autism parent you can be, if that's your situation, being the best ODD parent you can be, or being the best teacher or therapist or speech pathologist you can be, um, there's some really good sources of information. The Do Better Movement is one. Um, I'm gonna recommend the Seven Steps to a Successful Parenting page as an opportunity to talk specifically about this. Oh yeah, we process. haven't even talked about that yet. That's <laughs> 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 gonna have to be another time. But yeah, that, I love what you're doing there on that Facebook group. I'll make sure to have the link to that in the show notes as well. We had that as like our last question, but we've, <laughs> it's been like three hours, so. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I, I actually have, uh, I have uh, another, Thing coming up and you did too I think so we probably should end this yeah you, uh, do, but but yeah, you are doing in that group it's awesome to see like the different types of questions you're asking people and keeping it interactive um, it's been really good I'd like it on. to be I'd like it to become more of a place where people who are introduced to the seven steps can go and ask questions that they're having in their home about it yeah and then there'd be this wealth of information available for free where people can just, whoever happens to be free at the moment can jump on and say, oh yeah, I had the same question when I was starting. Here's what I learned and here's what I did. And so that we can, everyone could be helping each other that way. Right now it's more just getting started. I mean, I've only had the thing for about a month, not even, yep. probably a couple of weeks. Uh, and it's already got eight over almost 900 members. Um, but right now it's mostly me raising questions like, hey, what are you doing with this? And, and what do you think about these things? But I'm getting lots of engagement. And I know that there's a lot of really important, valuable uh, people on there, just like there is in the Do Better movement. So um, yeah, I'm excited about where it's going to go. And thanks, for, and thanks for being a part of it. Yeah, thanks for um, participating today, Joe. Sorry I talked a lot and Robert talked even more. We didn't get to have <laughs> too many questions from you, but um, hopefully all of our listeners enjoy this. And um, if you have questions, again, I'll have all the contact information in the show notes. Perfect. Sounds good to me. Thank you guys so much. And if you ever want to get together and chat again, I'm always, always interested. And uh, to those of you who are watching this, um, I hope that the seven steps become a big part of what you do. And uh, if you have any trouble at all, contact me. Um, I think the best way probably is Robert at robertramconsulting.com. Uh, and then I can put you in touch with either one of the companies that I work with, if that's the best place for you, or I can just answer some questions for you for free from there. And uh, we'll see what we can do to, to do better. Thanks, Robert. <laughs> awesome. Right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate Thank you it. so much.